Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for Saturday, May 6th and Sunday, May 7th, 2023. Uh, I want to start off by uh, thanking World Politics Review for once again sponsoring tonight's newsletter. Uh, check out World Politics Review. It's a great online journal. features a lot of in-depth news and analysis, um, much of it quite insightful, I think. Um, well worth your time if you're interested in the same topics that we cover here at Foreign Exchanges. Uh, I've linked to a number of uh, World Politics Review pieces in the newsletter, as regular readers will know. Um, I read more than I link to. It helps me kind of think through some things when I'm writing. Uh, those of you who are fans of Alex Thurston, uh, one of our contributors here at Foreign Exchanges, uh, should know that he's written for World, World Politics Review on a number of occasions. Uh, and uh, they have, you can click through, there's a link uh, in the newsletter tonight. Uh, just click through to sign up for their free newsletter uh, and also learn how to get an all-access World Politics Review subscription for just $1 for the first three months and 50% off after that. Please check it out, uh, and thanks again to them. On to the newsletter. Uh, there's a few anniversaries of note. On May 6th, 1527, a group of around 20,000 Habsburg soldiers and mercenaries, mutinying over not being paid, decided to sack the city of Rome and besiege Pope Clement VII in the Castel Sant'Angelo. Uh, the city was heavily looted. Clement was only released after agreeing to pay a ransom. Uh, some art historians consider the sack and the devastation that it entailed to mark the end of the Italian High Renaissance. It definitely marked a shift in the Catholic world. Clement and the papacy were badly weakened. Uh, and although Habsburg Emperor Charles V may have been a little embarrassed about how it all happened, he was certainly happy to take advantage of that weakness uh, and power shifted to some degree away from the Pope and toward the Emperor. Among other things, this meant that the Church did not pursue the crusade against Protestantism that Clement had favored, which helped solidify the Reformation. Uh, also on May 6th, 1954, British runner Roger Bannister became the first person to verifiably run a mile in under four minutes, uh, which is cool. Uh, I can run a three-minute mile myself, but four is really nice. Uh, good for him. Uh, no, seriously, uh, Bannister's time of three minutes, or three, eight minutes, uh, 59.4 seconds, uh, obviously stood as the world record, but only for about six weeks, incredibly, before it was broken on June 21st by Australian runner John Landy's three-minute, 58-second mile. So, uh, you know, good for him. Uh, on May 7th, 1942, the naval battle of the Coral Sea reached its climax, which was uh, something of a mixed bag. The Japanese Navy won a tactical victory, sinking several heavy U.S. vessels, including the fleet carrier USS Lexington, while losing comparatively less, but the losses that Japan did suffer severely curtailed its naval strength, preventing a planned invasion of Port Moresby, uh, Port Moresby in Papua, and uh, also contributed to the Allied victory at the Battle of Midway in June. What is most noteworthy about the Battle of the Coral Sea is that it was the first naval battle in history in which the actual ships involved never directly fired on one another. The entire battle was fought via carrier aircraft. Uh, suffice to say, this had a profound impact on naval warfare moving forward, uh, because that's pretty much the way that, that they those battles are fought these days. On to the news. In the Middle East and Syria, Arab League foreign ministers meeting in Cairo voted on Sunday to readmit the Syrian government to the club immediately and seemingly unconditionally. 
The decision means that Syrian President Bashar al-Assad could conceivably participate in this month's Arab League Leaders Summit in Riyadh. The Arab League suspended Syria's membership after the onset of the Syrian civil war in 2011, but several member states have moved toward normalizing relations with Assad's government in recent months, and the Saudi-Iranian diplomatic thaw has intensified that process. The vote on Sunday was somewhat surprising in that momentum towards Syrian readmission had seemed to slow down a bit in recent days amid objections from some Arab League members, chiefly Qatar, whose government made a point on Sunday of rejecting normalization and amid a push by the Jordanian government to condition Syrian readmission on Assad's willingness to adopt measures to speed the return of refugees into Syria and to crack down on captagon trafficking. As I wrote above, though, there is no indication of conditionality attached to this vote. Uh, in Jordan, the Israeli government has repatriated Jordanian member of parliament Imad al-Adwan after having arrested him two weeks ago in, on charges of attempting to smuggle arms and gold into the West Bank. There is, interestingly, no indication that Adwan's arrest has damaged Israeli-Jordanian relations. Uh, they're not great anyway, but that's for other reasons. Jordanian authorities have apparently agreed to investigate claims that he's made multiple smuggling trips across the border over the past year and to prosecute him if warranted. He's been stripped of parliamentary immunity and presumably his diplomatic passport has been seized. In Israel-Palestine, Israeli soldiers shot and killed two Palestinians on Sunday during an arrest raid in the refugee camp, uh, in a refugee camp rather near the West Bank city of Tulkarm. According to Israeli authorities, both men were involved in a shooting near Tulkarm on Tuesday, in which one Israeli settler was wounded. We did cover that in Tuesday's newsletter. Hamas has identified both of them as members. The Israeli government, meanwhile, has quietly approved tenders for the construction of 1,248 new West Bank and East Jerusalem settlement housing units. This is somewhat noteworthy in that the Israeli government supposedly agreed back in February to put any talk of new settlement construction on ice for at least the next four months. I say somewhat because the chances that this Israeli government in particular would actually abide by such a thing were always pretty slim. Uh, in Iran, Iranian authorities on Saturday executed Habib Chab, a Swedish-Iranian dual national who allegedly led the Arab struggle movement for the liberation of Ahwaz, that group which seeks independence for the Arab population in southwestern Iran, claimed, then subsequently denied responsibility for a September 2018 attack on a military parade in the city of Ahvaz that left at least 29 people dead. The Swedish government, which opposes capital punishment as a matter of policy, says it intervened to try to prevent Chobb's execution, obviously to no avail. In Asia, uh, in India, Indian soldiers killed two suspected Kashmiri militants in two separate engagements on Saturday, one in the Rajuri district and another in the Kunzur district. Rajuri has been a particularly hot spot in recent days, and militants killed at least five uh, Indian personnel there the previous day on Friday. India is hosting a G20 working group in Kashmir later this month to try to spur tourism and investment in the region, and consequently, New Delhi has its security forces there on particular particularly high alert. Elsewhere, intercommunal violence appears to be continuing in the Indian state of Maripur, despite the deployment of soldiers reportedly with shoot-on-site orders to that region on Thursday to, among other things, enforce a strict curfew. Local morgues say the fighting has killed at least 54 people so far, with scores more wounded, thousands displaced, and substantial amounts of property damage. 
Detailed information about the situation has been difficult to ascertain as the Indian government has imposed an internet blackout on Maripur, ostensibly in an effort to suppress the violence. Al Jazeera has published an explainer on the fighting, which began on Wednesday when members of the Kuki tribe marched to pr- protest an effort by the Maitai people, the largest ethnic group in the state, to obtain what's known as scheduled tribal status from the government. That status is meant to protect the rights of small communities, and there are concerns that giving it to the relatively sizable Mai Tai uh, community or Mai Tai people could have adverse effects on Maripur's current designated tribal groups. Uh, in China, according to the Financial Times, uh, I have a link in the newsletter to a Reuters piece that summarizes it and is not paywalled. European Union member states will discuss a new round of sanctions this week related to the war in Ukraine. Among the items on their agenda uh, will be blacklisting seven Chinese companies that are accused of selling so-called dual-use products to Russia. Adopting these sanctions could be a significant step for the EU, which is clearly split internally. Uh, Just talked to French President Emmanuel Macron about whether and how much it should tow the U.S. line with respect to China policy. In South Korea, Japanese Prime Minister Kishida Fumio spent the weekend in South Korea, making him the first Japanese PM to visit that country in 12 years. Uh, Kishida and South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol furthered their bilateral reconciliation process with a series of events that seem meant mostly to show how contrite, but notably not apologetic, Kishida is about the 20th century Japanese occupation of Korea and its attendant atrocities. This was presumably for Yoon's benefit as his efforts to improve ties with Japan by, for example, trying to absolve Japanese companies of reparations for said atrocities have not been entirely popular with the South Korean public. The two leaders are trying to improve relations due to shared concerns about North Korea and under some pressure from the U.S. to get along as part of the anti-China new Cold War bloc Washington is trying to build in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, On to Africa and Sudan, representatives of that country's warring factions, the military and the rapid support forces, spent the weekend in the Saudi city of Jeddah in an effort to negotiate a durable ceasefire. They were joined on Sunday by United Nations Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs Martin Griffiths to discuss at least opening up humanitarian corridors to allow desperately needed aid to get into combat zones and to give civilians trapped in those zones some opportunity to evacuate. There's no indication they made any progress on either front. Certainly, there's been no sign of any reduction in the intensity of the violence in Sudan, though the conflict is at a stage where maybe just getting the two sides to talk is itself a kind of progress. In Niger, a Nigerian military vehicle struck a landmine in the Tilaberi region on Sunday, killing seven soldiers. Islamic State is particularly active in that region, though there are other jihadist groups in neighboring Mali and Burkina Faso that sometimes operate in western Niger as well. In Nigeria, Islamic State West Africa province fighters attacked a group of farmers in northeastern Nigeria's Borno state on Thursday, killing at least three people with another 11 still missing. Earlier in the week, a group of loggers was attacked in a different part of Borno uh, in an incident that saw at least four people killed, with 11 more still missing. Uh, Because of the location of that earlier attack, Boko Haram is suspected of having been responsible. 
on to Europe in Russia, a pro-war writer named Zakhar Prilepin was the target of a car bombing outside of Moscow on Saturday that left him wounded and his driver slash bodyguard dead. Russian authorities say they've arrested a suspect in connection with the incident, which they are unsurprisingly blaming on the Ukrainian, UK and US governments. However, a Crimean Tatar militant group called Atesh claimed responsibility for the bombing via telegram. Ukrainian presidential advisor Mikhailo Podolyak uh, has denied that Kyiv had any involvement in the incident, though other Ukrainian officials have been a little more coy in their comments. Uh, in Ukraine, a number of uh, stories to recount here. An apparent drone strike, Ukrainian drone strike, targeted Crimea early Sunday morning. Russian officials are claiming that at least 10 Ukrainian drones were involved and have not acknowledged any damage or casualties. Uh, getting independent verification about uh, anything that happens here pretty much is understandably difficult. Uh, it sounds like Sunday also brought another eventful night of Russian missile strikes uh, across Ukraine with reports of a significant explosion in Odessa and air raid sirens going off in Kyiv. Uh, the commander of the Ukrainian army, Alexander Sirsky, claimed late Sunday that Russian forces are intensifying their efforts to seize all of the city of Bakhmut ahead of Russia's May 9th Victory Day celebration. Here, too, any independent confirmation is impossible. You may not be surprised to learn under the circumstances that Wagner Group boss Yevgeny Prigozhin has walked back the threat he made on Friday, which we covered in, that, in Friday's newsletter, to pull his fighters out of Bakhmut due to an alleged lack of ammunition. He announced via telegram on Sunday that the Russian military had promised to supply Wagner with, quote, as much ammunition and weapons as we need to continue further operations, end quote. Uh, elsewhere, there are indications that Russian forces may be preparing to give some ground. Ukrainian officials are claiming, again, without confirmation, this is a, a bit of a theme here, uh, that Russian authorities are evacuating civilians from the town of Enerhodar, uh, which is uh, located in Ukraine's Zaporizhia Oblast. It is near the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which has been, of course, taken offline by the war, but still represents a potential meltdown risk. It's possible the Russians are anticipating a Ukrainian offensive in this area. Zaporizhia makes sense as a target if the Ukrainian goal is to cut the Russian land bridge between the Donbass and Crimea. But there's still no indication where the Ukrainians are preparing to attack, assuming that their spring counteroffensive is actually going to happen. The evacuation itself, however, is potentially cause for concern if it affects maintenance activities at the nuclear plant. The Ukrainian military, meanwhile, said on Saturday that, it, that its forces had successfully shot down a Russian Kinjal hypersonic missile over Kyiv two days earlier using a U.S. Patriot air defense battery. Uh, again, there's no confirmation of this, but if it's true, you can be sure that the U.S. military will be keenly interested uh, to learn how it all went down. Hypersonic missiles are generally thought to be too fast and too maneuverable to be intercepted by existing air defense technology. Uh, and finally here, the Ukrainian and Russian governments concluded a prisoner exchange on Saturday. Full details aren't available, but the Ukrainians received at least 45 members of the uh, somewhat notorious Azov Battalion who were captured in Mariupol last year, while the Russians received at least three captured pilots. In Slovakia, caretaker Prime Minister Edward Heger abruptly resigned his post on Sunday, leading President Zuzana Chaputova to select the deputy governor of Slovakia's central bank, Ludovic Odor, as his replacement. 
Uh, Hager's government lost a no-confidence vote in Parliament in December, and the country is in a holding pattern heading into a snap election in September. A number of ministers had resigned in recent days, forcing Hager to quit uh, himself, uh, as those posts could not be filled under an interim government. Uh, apologies to any Slovak speakers for my poor pronunciations there. In the Americas, in Chile, uh, a far-right bloc led by former presidential candidate Jose Antonio Cast looks set to win Sunday's election for the country's new constitutional assembly. With a bit over 90% of the votes counted, the bloc is leading with 35.53% of the vote. A leftish bloc aligned with President Gabriel Boric is at 28.34%, while the establishment center-right bloc sits at 21.2%, with smaller centrist elements making up the rest of the field. Given that any proposed articles will require a three-fifths vote to be adopted into a new constitution, the splintering of the vote in this way suggests that gridlock may be the order of the day, uh, and if a new draft constitution does emerge, it seems unlikely that it will differ significantly from the current Augusto Pinochet-era charter. In the United States, writing for The Nation, Spencer Ackerman argues that the Biden administration's plan to empty the detention camp at Guantanamo Bay without officially closing it does not go far enough. I'll just read you the first two paragraphs of his piece. Few of us are paying attention to Guantanamo Bay right now, but a recent United Nations report reveals that the post-9-11 forever prison is shifting into a macabre new phase, providing end-of-life care for its aging captives with its characteristic brutality. It's a grim testament to how normalized Guantanamo is in 21st century America. Some will see the impending detainee deaths as Guantanamo solving the problem of itself. President Biden, to his credit, isn't one of them. He has accelerated transfers out of Guantanamo, but his approach has a central flaw. Even if transfers could vacate the detention camp, emptying Guantanamo is not the same as closing Guantanamo. And unless the camp is permanently shuttered, it's only a matter of time before one of Biden's successors takes up Donald Trump's unrealized call to fill it back up with, quote, some bad dudes, end quote. It could well be Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who's about to be the first president candidate with Guantanamo service on his resume. One might even argue that should be disqualifying, but of course not in America, the shining city on the hill. Anyway, that's just me uh, talking there. Sorry, I digressed. Uh, but on that note, uh, that's it for us this weekend. Thanks to all of you. I hope you had a great weekend. Thanks to all of you for reading and or listening to the newsletter, and especially those of you who are subscribers, especially, especially if you're paid foreign exchanges subscriber. And if you are not, please consider it. Uh, we could definitely use the support. And uh, the only way I can grow this newsletter is to uh, is for people to subscribe and uh, bring on, we can bring on new writers and more frequent columns. I would love to do that. Uh, but we need to get, uh, get the pie higher, as George W. Bush would say, uh, before that's going to work uh, financially. So uh, please consider it. And uh, until next time, take care and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.